about what they believe, what they hold sacred and special. Uh, many world religions, in fact most world religions, venerate some sacred place in their worship or in their thought or in their ideology. For example, Islam honors Mecca, uh, Hinduism, the Ganges River, uh, Shintoism, the islands of Japan. So if you could just consider just those three, you mean to see that world religions honor some place as sacred, some, some area, some geographical place where they think they meet with the divine. In Judaism, uh, they venerated Jerusalem. They saw Jerusalem as a sacred place, especially the temple. The temple ground was especially there. The temple mount uh, in Jerusalem was a sacred place. But, but what makes Judaism, as you think about it, something uh, somewhat different is that they venerated something beyond space. They venerated time. They called it the Sabbath. And when you really think about our lives as humans, they're really, you could divide our lives into really two categories. And I know this is really uh, very simplistic, and I don't mean it to be that simplistic because life is more complicated than this. But if you were to think about life, you could divide your life into really two spheres, one being space, the other being time. Uh, space is that area in your life that really you give yourself to the most. Uh, time is sort of the, 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 the dollars that you spend to get more space, right? So, for example, space might be an area in your life, uh, perhaps education. So you want to grow the, the area of space of education in your life so you, so you give yourself to doing that. You want to grow for perhaps the space geographically, like you know your footprint on this map. So you know, not too long ago in, in American history, or in American life, one of the greatest things was to own a piece of this land, right? It was just to own a piece of, of it, and you just like that geographically, you worked, you gave yourself to have that piece of land. Uh, perhaps another area of space that you might that we might give ourselves to is material items. So, so a space, something in our life that you that, that really holds value is your material possessions, the things that you own. Uh, perhaps a space uh, non-monetary would or non-material would be notoriety or popularity, something that you give yourself to, something that you want to increase your sphere in. Popularity, perhaps on the internet, popularity uh, among your neighbors, popularity among your family and friends, popularity at work, all kinds of places. We desire more and more space. Uh, we, we work hard in our ambitions to, to gather and to gain more of that space, whatever it may be, and each of us are different. We set our goals and our ambitions in order to, to gain more of it. In a word, space is really, uh, really an abundant resource if you think about it. Really consider space. It is abundant. There's a lot of space. There's a lot of, a lot of different things you can give, or give yourself to. But the one thing that isn't abundant is time. If you really consider one of the things that often is said between a, uh, perhaps a billionaire and, and, and a poor man is they have the same 24-hour day, right? They, they have the same, you have the same amount of time to get things done as, as the guy who's running a multi-billion dollar company, right? You, you have the same amount of time as he does. And so acquiring more time isn't possible. There's nothing you can do in your life to, to get more time. Time is, is limited. It's a limited source. Time is different than space. Time is fixed, where space isn't really fixed in the sense that you can gather more and more space. What we do with our time is, in fact, we leverage it in order to gain more of what we care about most. 
So if you care a lot about your children, you give them more time, right? If you care about your job, you're going to give your job more time. If you care about your education, you're going to give your education more time. If you care about your performance, maybe even your popularity, you're going to give yourself to that. You're going to give yourself to pursuing that in your life. If you care about something, you give your time to that something. In fact, the Bible often uses time as a way to sort of delve into the human heart and to see what you really love the most. So we consider what we love the most is what we give ourselves to the most. Well, then we begin to see maybe perhaps where idols are in our lives. So when we give ourselves mostly to work or, or to ambitions that are separate than the things that God has ordained and designed in our life, well, then we begin to see where our idols are, where the things in our life that we care most about. And the things that we really don't care about, well, we don't give much time to because we don't want to gain more space in that area. Perhaps for you this morning, it's family. Sadly, you care more about work than family. Maybe it's your health. You care more about your job than you do about your health. You care more about your family than you do your health. We could see that there's so many ways that we give our time, whether it be our children, our work, our learning. All of it tell us what we value the most. In our time together, I want you to think about time. I want to think about time and how we use our time. Does time matter to you? Have you really ever thought about time? I want you to think also about how our culture orients itself not so much around time, but around space. Around space and not time. Oftentimes when you think about time in our culture, just for example, if you were to flip on the mainstream media this afternoon when you get home, you're not going to find a lot of stories about time. Time is something that is, we don't really like talking. It's like an ugly subject. And I think often it's because it's the one thing we abuse the most. We abuse time. What about time? What are we to do with time? How are we to use it? In light of the people of Israel and their time and how they thought about time, all of this is to help us think about what Jesus' words are here in math in Mark. Excuse me. If you have a copy of God's Word, I hope you do. If you don't, there's a copy of it right in front of you, I pray. Uh, you can use one of the Pew Bibles. Uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 2 and verse 23. That should be page 838. I may be incorrect, but if someone has a pew Bible, what page is that on? It helps when the preacher has a Bible that has the exact same page numbers. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Listen to the reading of God's word. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any to eat, but the priest, excuse me, not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath 
so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and, it was, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Over the last few weeks, and I know last week we were all snowed in, but over the last few weeks we've been considering in Mark's Gospel Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders of His day. We've been really seeing Jesus confronting the religious notions of His day, the religious teachings of His day. Jesus has come and began to press in against what the establishment of the religious leaders thought there in Jerusalem what these Pharisees and scribes were teaching contrary to God's Word. It began back in in chapter 2 and verse 13. There we learn that Jesus called Levi to follow Him and be His disciple. We think, oh, that's cool. Levi is a good name. They named some genes after that guy, you know. Uh, No, Levi was a social outcast. Levi was, was not somebody you wanted to hang around with, right? Just like today, if there was probably an IRS worker in here, you know, you would probably cower. You wouldn't make that known among us here today, right? Uh, He was a tax collector. He was a thief. He was seen by his people as a traitor. He was hanging out with the filthy Gentiles all day. No one liked him. And here Jesus is hanging out with the social outcast. And this enrages the Pharisees. It enrages them because Jesus... You want to become a religious teacher in our country, in our nation. You want to follow our father Abraham. And here you are hanging out with the wrong crowd. You can't become a great leader in our country, Jesus, if you don't hang out with the right people. The in crowd, the people that that are the movers and the shakers. Jesus pushes against them as he sits and eats with sinners and tax collectors. Excuse me, tax collectors. And he reminds them that he came for a purpose. He came not to call those that were righteous, those that were seen as as right in their own eyes, but to call sinners to repentance. He pushes against them. The story goes on. The narrative continues uh, what we considered two weeks ago and that Jesus confronted their views on fasting. Their views on fasting. This is where Jesus begins to press in on their their understanding of the Bible and their interpretation of the Bible. What the the religious leaders were skewing and and changing and and, and transforming what the Bible really said. They were more concerned about the letter of the law than they were about the intent of the law. And so they smacked him around about fasting and said, hey, Jesus, what's the deal? Look, we fast. John's disciples fast, right? So really the, the spectrum of religious leadership in, 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 in Jerusalem at that time, in Judea at that time, was John's disciples and the Pharisees. If you wanted to know anything about how to have a relationship with God, you went and saw one of those two groups. And both of them were fasting. What's the deal, Jesus? Your disciples aren't fasting. And Jesus began to push and confront them that, that they are misunderstanding that who Jesus was. It was a misunderstanding of Jesus' identity that because Jesus was there, there was no need to fast. In fact, it was a time of celebration and time of excitement. 
Not a time of mourning and crying, but a time of feast and celebration. This week, we're going to consider again Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders. Mark includes in his gospel four confrontations. Really the purpose of this is to help you understand a little bit about why did they want to kill Jesus so badly? Why did they want to see Jesus dead? Remember, Mark is writing to uh, Christians. Generally, Mark is writing this letter or this gospel to Christians in Rome. All right, so Gentile Christians, much like many of us here today, non-Jewish Christians, and, and they're trying to seek and understand why did they want to kill my Savior so badly? Why was it that they, why were they so upset with him? What's the deal? And then also to, to really give us assurance. Again, if you're being persecuted, if you're suffering for your faith and your belief in Jesus, and you read a story about how your Savior suffered too, about how he dealt with some pretty nasty people, gives you confidence, encourages you that Jesus didn't do anything that he has not subjected you to. That is, that, that there's nothing that you're going to deal with in your life that Jesus hasn't dealt with in his life. That's a refreshing reminder as we consider. So we consider here this morning two stories. First, a confrontation with the Pharisees over eating on the Sabbath. And then the second narrative is that this confrontation over healing on the Sabbath. So as we think about this, as we think about what was going on, central to these two narratives is this idea of authority. I think really, if you just take that word authority, and if you don't have anything to do this afternoon, read Mark's gospel, think about the word authority. You're going to find that concept over and over and over again. Maybe over lunch today, you can have a conversation about authority. But maybe authority in your own life. And how you think about authority or, or think about authority in God's word like, you know, how did Jesus deal with those that thought they had authority? What we see central to this story is authority. The authority of who Jesus was over and against the authority of the religious leaders. The establishment. I like that word because it's been thrown around in our media, so I just kind of wanted to use it today. Because uh, it's been used so much uh, in, in a meaningless way. But, but, you know, those that have the right to say right or wrong. Those in, in the world that say this is right and this is wrong, whoever that may be. In this context here in Ju- Jerusalem, in Judea, in, in the people of Israel, it was the Pharisees that really had the majority uh, of influence upon their life. And so what we learn through this passage is something about the identity of who Jesus is. Who is Jesus and what has he come to do? I think before we really begin to understand what is going on, let's back up for a moment and let's consider what is the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? What's that all about? If you've been a Christian a while, you've probably heard many, many things about the Sabbath. Good things, bad things, and different things. You've probably heard preachers talk about, you know, the Lord's Day is the Sabbath and and all that goes along with it. If you've been a Christian a while, you've probably experienced maybe even blue laws in in this country and you've, you know, felt the the, the pressure of of not working on Sunday or or the cultural or, or, or family pressure of getting a job on Sunday and all those things that go along with it. What is the Sabbath? What does it mean? I think for us to understand that, we've got to kind of go to the Bible. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. I just want you to hear this again. I want you to see that it's coming from God's word. That this is God's word to man. This is God's word to the Israelite people under the old covenant. 
Now, I want you to, I just want to remind you of something here. I just want to, remind, I just want to position you. Because oftentimes when, when we read the Bible, we read it in a sort of a flat, linear way. We, we think that if we were like back up to Exodus, it's the same situation that's going on in, in Mark. And when you do that, you apply rules and lists in a way that's often arbitrary and non-applicable to you. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall do, you shall not do any work, you or your sons, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord God made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So as we think about the Sabbath day here in, the, in, in what you may be familiar with as the Ten Commandments, the, the ten words that, that Moses received from God, um, I want to position this in the life of the Israelites. First of all, I want you to notice that the Ten Commandments come after salvation. The Ten Commandments come after God has saved his people. It doesn't come before so, so God doesn't give this list, th- these rules, to Moses before he saves them from slavery. The Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. God rescues them through a miraculous power and delivers them from slavery. A picture of, of oppression and sin and being saved by God. Something that we'll see come up again in the re- resurrection of Christ, that, that we've been Freed from slavery to sin, that our chains have been broken off as we've sung this morning. So we think about this. We think about the law was given after salvation and not before. So I want to remind you that an Israelite was saved by faith alone in the promises of God and not by works. So they were not saved by obeying the Ten Commandments. They were saved by believing the promise of God given to their father Abraham. That he would save them, make them a great nation. And so, when we read the Ten Commandments, we have to first recognize the purpose of the Sabbath was to give the Israelites not salvation, but rest. Rest from their labor. Like physical labor. Like the physical aspect of working. Working. Now, we live in a culture, when we read that, we're like, yeah, we get two days off, you know, right? We get two days off from our work, our 40 hour, you know, that, that regular work week, or maybe if you work on the week, you, know, you have a day off throughout your seven day work week from perhaps, not everyone, but most of us do, right? So most of us, when we read it, it's like, ah, oh, this isn't weird. But culturally, this was foreign. To take an entire day off of work was economically foolish. And if you if you're a if you're a uh, uh, someone who earns an hourly wage, I know you sense the feeling of this. When you get the opportunity to get some overtime in, when you actually get paid for working in overtime, right? Salary people they didn't like. That, you know, maybe they get some comp time or something like that. It's like, ah, oh, I hate it. You know, because you don't get any extra comp. You don't really sit, you don't feel the extra compensation. But if you're an hourly worker and you can work some overtime, maybe get 20, 30 hours of overtime a week, boy, you're excited. You're excited. You, you forsake. And so you begin to feel the pressure 
of working seven days. You feel that pressure like you want to work more and more. But to the Israelites, this was foreign to them and to the world around them. So this wasn't normal in life. No more is it normal for us to, you know, not turn on the TV, you know, to hear silence. When's the last time you you just sat for an hour in silence, didn't hear anything, right? It's abnormal. And so was working, not working, excuse me, seven days a week. But God comes to them and provides for them rest. It was a means of faith for them. If you can't work on the one day that you can make money, right, where you can trade with other people or you can, you can go out and harvest your crop that needs to be harvested. I mean, it's been raining all week. It's sunny today on Saturday, the Sabbath day, and it's finally sunny and I can't go out and harvest my crop. That takes a lot of faith, doesn't it? To not go out and harvest your crop and know that tomorrow it's going to be sunny or that it's not going to rain. It takes faith. And so the Sabbath day was really a means of resting in God's provision in their life. It was a a way in which they could go and really feel the presence of God in their life. And the providence of God. That God was going to provide for them on that day. Just as much as maybe some of you have felt this week when Friday came. And you got that check. And you said, God, if you don't multiply this, I'm not eating this week. Right? Will God provide on the Sabbath day? Will He give me rest? So the Sabbath day was a means in which the people were to rest, but it was also a day that would identify the people separate from the world. Imagine, imagine all the hustle and bustle. People are out farming their crops. People are trading in the market and something is different. Something is off. All the Jewish markets are closed. All of the Jews are in their homes. No one's in their fields. It's silent. It's eerie. It's creepy. It's like, oh, weird. If you've ever been in like an industrial town and the in that industrial plant, whether it be the steel mill, whether it be the coke plant, whether it be the factory, whatever, and it's silent. People are in their homes and it's like you see the tumbleweeds going. It's eerie. It's creepy. And that's what it was like. They were distinguished. They were different from the world around them. And the world around them hated it. Because you can't make money with people who aren't willing to buy anything. And so the Jews were despised by the people around them. Fast forward to Jesus' day, the Jews were despised by the Romans because they wouldn't trade with them on the Sabbath day. Now literally the Sabbath day means rest. This is what it means. It's, It's a day of rest. And it started at sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. Okay, so boom, boom, all right? So just to be clear, Sunday is not the Sabbath day. All right? Just get our language right. Today is not the Sabbath. That was yesterday. Ended at sundown yesterday. All right? Just be clear. So as we think about what the Sabbath is and the purpose of the Sabbath, let's consider in light of God's revelation, His word, was the activity that Jesus and His disciples were involved in, plucking heads of grain, was that sinful? Were they, in fact, breaking the Sabbath day? 
In short, no. Well, why not? It's easy to say, but why not? Because there is nowhere in God's word that says that plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath was sinful. In fact, in God's word, in Deuteronomy, there are provisions that if you are poor, there was provisions in the law that provided for those that were poor that they could go and pluck heads of grain. Now, they couldn't go and harvest heads of grain. They couldn't go out and like harvest on, Saturday, on the Sabbath day. They couldn't get their sickle out and start chopping down. But they could go and pluck what they needed if they were poor and hungry and in need. Now, what we see here then is that that the Pharisees have some sort of other set of rules that they must be following. There's some reason why they say here in Mark's Gospel, why, Jesus, do your disciples do what is unlawful or not lawful on the Sabbath day? What do you mean? You're like, I've read the Old Testament. I don't see anything. Where are you getting this from, Mr. Pharisee? (laughs) Throughout the history of Judaism... And and really, this is quite simple. God commanded, don't work on on the Sabbath. And guess what happened? That You know that smart Alec from class, a little smart kid from class, always had all those smart questions for the teacher? Raises her hand. Uh, Hey, Moses? Moses? Uh, What's work? What does it mean to work? What What do you mean by work? What constitutes work? Is picking up my pencil work? Is walking a hundred feet work? Is plucking heads of grain work? What's work, Moses? And so throughout the history of Judaism, that question came up over and over, and the, 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 the religious leaders would get gather around. They would, they would try to answer that question. Well, in the second century BC, a group of, of rabbis got together and they wrote a document called the Mishnah, in the Mishnah, and in the Mishnah, it, it really spells out definitively some things that are, you can do and you can't do, on the Sabbath. Well, this is the rules. This rabbinical code is what the Pharisees are using. And in their rabbinical code, there was on the third one, third one down, it says, you cannot pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath day. You cannot. They, they saw that as harvesting. They saw that as, as, as a no-no. And so these men questioned Jesus on, their, on the grounding of their own rules. Now I want to remind you of the danger of religion. I think this passage really confronts us with the danger of religion. The the lists and our obsession with lists. You're anything like me, I'm a task oriented person. My son is a task. My my oldest son is a task. We just got a little uh, 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 responsibility chart at home. The dude's like obsessed with the thing. He just wants to always like, I got that done. I got that. And he's got to have a list, right? I'm the same way. Every week I have a detailed oriented list of everything I'm going to do that week. And I get really mad when I don't do everything on the list. Well, the problem with lists is this. Is that we end up serving the one who created the list rather than the intent of creating the list in the first place. So, so I don't want to like throw the Pharisees under the bus this morning and say they were just really horrible people that didn't love God. That's not true. I think they did love God, but they were confused as to how God loved them. They were confused on the aspect of God's covenantal love towards them. That God wasn't concerned about them you know, 
meeting the letter of the law, but that they were fulfilling the intent of the law. The law, again, what came after salvation. As a means to have a relationship with God. The the Ten Commandments aren't to be pressed upon a, a secular society like we as Christians often want to do. By hanging them in schools, that's not going to help but condemn. Sure, the Ten Commandments are helpful to order society. I'm not discounting that. But the intent of the Ten Commandments isn't to impress them upon others, but to live our lives in, in a relationship. Their language of relationship, of a love relationship between a people and their God, not a bunch of list of do's and don'ts. But what we often want to do is turn religion into lists. Where if we do this, then we're accepted. If we don't do this, then we're out. And the problem again is, is we serve the one who created the list. And oftentimes those lists are created within some sort of cultural idiosyncrasy that that individual or that group rendered. So, if the preacher's not wearing a tie on Sunday mornings, then he must have a problem. Well, friends, that was born out of a cultural rendering from the 1940s that is not the world we live in today. It's just the reality, right? See, cultural renderings, or, or for example, uh, if you don't listen to a particular kind of music, or if you do listen to a particular kind of music, then you must be satanic. Well, friends, you don't want to hear what your preacher's listening to because you'd be scared for him. The thing is, is those lists are based on a utopian understanding of a world that can never exist in this world. Because this world is a broken world. This world, lists don't work in this world. And what we're really trying to do to people is behavior modification. And ultimately what happens is is we create a generation of people that look good, that smell clean, that listen to clean music, but they're going to hell. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They created a generation of people who were more worried about obeying lists than to knowing the God who that list was created in the beginning. And I want you to notice how Jesus responds to these Pharisees. He says to them, have you never read what David did? I just want you to think about that right there, who he's asking that. These are like the experts in the Bible. These are Bible experts, Old Testament experts. He said, hey, have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever surely like read the thing? I think it's fascinating. Jesus, you read what David did when he entered the temple, when he was in need, he was hungry. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence. What is not lawful for any to do? David did something that was not lawful, was not permitted in the Bible. But nowhere, if you were to go to 1 Samuel and read that story, you're not going to find one line in there where Samuel or his scribes wrote a line that says David was a sinner because he ate the bread of presence. The showbread, the 12 loaves that were only for the priests. You won't find that line in the Bible at all. Why? Because they didn't see it as sin. And Jesus is saying, if David got away with that, how is it that what I'm doing is any worse? In fact, what Jesus is doing here is something quite extraordinary. Jesus is saying, David did this and someone greater than David is here. 
He says, even the Lord of the Sabbath. He said, the Sabbath was not made for man. Not the man. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus concludes by saying, hey, here's the deal. You're serving the Sabbath when the Sabbath was made to serve you. And that's my point about lists. That's the problem with lists. We end up serving the list rather than being served in our lives. Jesus is saying, hey, the Sabbath was made so that you could take a day off. So you could find enjoyment in your Creator, the God of the universe. Not so that you could worry all day, did I do it wrong? Did I mess up? And I find as I encounter people in in my life that are Christians, that question comes up more than anything else. I think I've done something to make God mad with me. And they live their lives based on the ebb and flow of their behavior. As if God is so wrapped up in you that He could not provide another way to save you than your good behavior. Friends, when Jesus came, He came as the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who is to fulfill the Sabbath on your behalf. Jesus rested in ways that we can't even imagine. He trusted God in ways that our minds would just be blown to think about how he trusted his father. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is weeping, he's crying, he's sweating drops of blood. And what does he say? Father, not my will, but your will be done. Friends, Jesus came and obeyed the Sabbath so that we could receive the Sabbath rest in him. As Hebrews 4, 9 tells us that in Christ there awaits a Sabbath rest. We will rest in Christ. Rest from the work of this world. Rest from the works of righteousness. We will rest in Him and trust Him. Friend, we, you may come this morning. I'm kind of running out of time and not able to spend as much time with this as I wanted. But, but I want you to get this point clear. You may come misunderstanding the intent of God's law. You may come as one who who loves the letter of the law rather than the the person that law points to. You may come having lived a life perhaps under the tyranny, perhaps the Roman Catholic Church that oppresses people with laws. And friends, what I want to offer you this morning is the free gift of, of life with Christ. If you're a Christian this morning and you have been living your life burdened, overwhelmed, overworked, how have you been using your time? I don't have time this morning to, to get into, you know, what, what about a Christian Sabbath? What about the Lord's Day? We've considered that briefly. Think about that more. Open God's Word. What does the New Testament say about, this, about Sunday? I think we should take time to rest. But my question is, is, are you finding joy in Christ? I mean that deep abiding rest. Like, just like, whew. when Jesus says, my burden is it's easy. What does it mean? 
What does that mean? Friend, if you're a Christian this morning and you want to know more about that, talk to, talk to any Christian around you. Talk to me. We can talk about what, how, how to live a life of rest in Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning, you want to, like you guys are talking about all this rest and, and I can feel the burden of my life and it, it is overwhelming and I just don't know what to do in my life and, and I'm just overwhelmed by it all. Friend, I want you to know today that there is nothing you have to do to be accepted by God. I'm not going to put before you a list. There's no list. There's no list. Tim Keller in his book, The King's Cross, records these words from a, uh, a famous British minister by the name of Dick Lucas. Uh, D- Dick Lucas was preaching a, a sermon one time, and he, he told an imaginary conversation between a, an early Christian and his neighbor in Rome. Ah, the neighbor says, I hear you're religious. Great. Religion is a good thing. Where is your holy temple or your holy place. We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple? But where do your priests work and do their rituals? We don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priest? But where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? We don't need sacrifices, replied the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this? sputters the pagan neighbor. It's no kind of religion at all, he said. Friends, Christianity isn't a religion following rules. It's about trusting a Savior. It's about turning from sin from living our life our own way and trusting in a glorious God who saved us, not because of our goodness and because of any works that we've done in righteousness, but because of His own work of righteousness. Because of His own Son that He gave as a substitute for us. Dying in our place, bearing the wrath of God for our sins. That is what Christ has done. That all those who put their faith in Him, their trust in Him, can receive a Sabbath rest. Let's pray. Great God of the universe, I pray that we would receive a sermon word from you that is greater than the word preached. Pray that your spirit would stir our hearts to think about our time, to think about our view of religion and what do we believe. Father, I pray that we would think hard today and the week ahead. What earns your favor? What is it that we do that earns your favor? Father, I pray that the answer to that question 
would be revealed in our hearts. The Father, that by your Spirit you would expose what we're putting our trust in. Maybe it's our good work, maybe it's our, our love, maybe it's our generosity, maybe it's our hospitality. Maybe it's just where we think of ourselves as good moral people. And Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would turn our hearts away from ourselves and trusting in our goodness, in our righteousness, and trusting in a, in a great Savior who is perfectly righteousness for us. He, he was more perfect than we'll ever dream of being. And He was for us. Father, I pray that we would experience that rest in Christ. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.